to this episode of Behind the Scene at NTSB. My name is Eric Strickland, and thank you very much for joining us. Uh, if you found us on your favorite podcast platform, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or ones that I don't know of, please make sure to give us a good rating, leave a comment, let us know some of the stuff that you're you're looking to hear on the episodes, and we'll see what we can do to get it in there. If you don't, I suppose most of you do, though, but if you don't, make sure to follow us on all of our social media channels. You can catch us on Twitter at NTSB, on Facebook at NTSBGov, on Instagram at NTSBGov, on LinkedIn at NTSB. And sorry, Brian, we're still not on Snapchat. Um, in the room today, I also want to make sure I give uh, thanks to, to James Anderson for making us sound good. I always, you know, sometimes forget to get him, get him the plug. And as you all know, so I try to get that early on so I can do that. Thanks to him for making it all sound good. And thanks to uh, Stephanie for joining us again to help add whatever questions I may forget. And to uh, intern Brian, for, he's, he's the quiet voice that's always here. And I don't think I've called him out before. So uh, perpetual intern Brian, we're glad that you're <laughs> able to join us. But to the actual uh, reason that we're all here for this episode, I would like to thank Mike Hamilton. Uh, for joining us for this episode of the of the podcast. Now, get me. I have this officially from the internal portal. If I get it wrong, just let me know. You are a same title I am. You're a transportation safety specialist. Is that kind of your categorization, Eric? That's correct. <laughs> Good. I so I got that right. So so Mike is a is a transportation safety specialist, and he's within our uh, safety recommendations and communications division, but focused on recommendations. And so I'll give a little nickel version and then you can expand upon it and we can kind of get into it but recommendations are the things that this agency is second best known for outside of the investigations so when we do an investigation our our investigators go through the whole process and find probable cause and then issue safety recommendations to help make sure that that incident accident that crash doesn't happen again people sometimes think that we make the recommendations and there you go that's all there is. There's no more to it and move on to the next to the next event. But really, there's that's just the start of a very long, lengthy and um, time consuming. But I would I would guess kind of um, fulfilling uh, process when it comes to these safety recommendations. So those are made, they're issued. And then Mike and all of his colleagues will take those and follow up with different groups to make sure that, you know, what questions do they have? Why did we make this help them so that they can. Uh, as we like to say, close acceptable action or close. There's there's like 13 different ways you can close a recommendation <laughs> and there's all like seven different ways for them to be positive. But, you know, make sure that they take actions to make things safer for the future. So so that's the nickel version. Did I how close was I, Mike? Eric, you were very close on <laughs> yeah. that. And as a matter of fact, you didn't really miss anything. I will say this, that the investigators, when they work with the safety recommendation specialists, we help them to craft the recommendations as well. So oh, we can okay. have the exact wording. And we want to make sure we craft the recommendations so the recipients are able to get to the point where we can get that to a close acceptable action and get that recommendation up to the 80% tile that we like to see and close them out. Yeah. So it's not like it's just a recommendation that's made out of the blue. So they work closely with you. So that's actually like feasible. So it's not just a you know, a pie in the sky. I mean, sometimes it is pie in the sky, but it's it's something that someone could possibly do. It's not just something that the technology hasn't been invented yet. You're absolutely correct. We make we can have lofty goals. We want them to <laughs> I like achieve that. That's, that's to good. Go lofty goal. That's place. good. Lofty goals for them, but we also want to make it attainable for them, accessible, yeah. so they can reach that goal and close it out and have a safe uh, response and a safe action for the rest of the okay. industry. 
So to be able to do that, you all kind of have to be specialists, and I, which I actually know. So uh, what is your specialty? What is your recommendation specialty? My background specialty is rail. And prior to coming to NTSB, I was at the Federal Railroad Administration okay. in Region 1, which covers New York, Boston, Maine, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and I was the operating so practices specialist. New York, there. Boston, and then all the small states that go up to Maine. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> That's correct. And while I was over at FRA, I really thought that I was at the top of the echelon there, top of the pile, top of the heap, king of the hill. Yeah. And then I realized we got a recommendation from NTSB, and I realized they were the king of the hill. <laughs> That's why I knew I had to be here. I wanted to be at that point. I like that. The so height of the safety recommendation. How long have you been at the NTSB? A little under three years now. Oh, okay. So still kind of newish, but, yes. but not quite. So what got you then interested in rail? So you know, you're at FRA for about how long? I was at FRA for two and a half years. Okay. Have you always been kind of a rail, interested in rail? Like, like what, was your, what was your rail journey? Where was your train start? What is it not train start? It's, where, did your, where did you get started? <laughs> <laughs> My interest started back when I was a young kid. In New Orleans, we would go to visit my aunt in Bridge City, Louisiana, oh. and that's near Avondale, Louisiana. That helps me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a train trussle that passes near over the Mississippi River Bridge, and it belongs to Union Pacific Railroad. And I would watch the Union Pacific trains travel across that trussle, and I would wave at the engineers, and they would blow their horn at me <laughs> when I would wave. And I just got into trains from there. Awesome. And lo and behold, after my stint in the military, four years in the Army at the 101st Airborne Division, I started working for Union Pacific Railroad. And from Union Pacific Railroad, I started out as a switchman, putting the trains together, took promotion to conductor, took promotion to engineer. Wow. Went from Union Pacific Railroad to something called the American Orient Express. And the American Orient Express is a private excursion train. And I went there as their train master. I did that for a little under three years, and I took their trains into Mexico and Canada, and I worked with the governments of Mexico and Canada to facilitate the movements and to express it in what we needed, and also look at their track structures to ensure that our rail, our rail cars would be able to traverse through their trackage without any derailments or anything like that. We would go out and survey the rail. That's pretty cool. No, the side tangent, aren't the gauges different in Mexico and Canada than the U.S.? Actually, no. Oh. Because for passenger rail, there's a standard car size, and most rail throughout the country, the North America, mm. are at that standard. When we go off into some of the, say, Central American countries or some yeah. of the ones of Far East, there's narrow gauge rail. There's narrow gauge here in the United States of America, however... We don't really traverse on that. It's mostly for tourist trains, okay. things of that nature. The, so I'm fascinated by the the Orient, the Great American Orient. Like, where did it start? Like, where did it end? How many different states? I mean, it seems like to go from Mexico to to Canada, there there aren't. We don't do train rides like that anymore. That's not really a thing. And I love those kind of things. I mean, I used to see some of those old like Pullman cars when I was a kid go through, um, and uh, well. I grew up in, in out west, and so it, it was the Marlboro train. So if you bought so many packs of cigarettes, you earned your coupons, <laughs> and you were able to get a ride on the Marlboro train. Right. So 
I was never allowed to ride that, but you would see that go through town, and it was fascinating. All those was it something like that? It is something like that. And you mentioned the Marlboro train. Well, in Mexico, they have the Tequila Express, <laughs> and there's a Tequila Express train. But the American Art Express started in Tenino, Washington, okay. which is Upper State Washington, towards the northwest part of the state. The trains were actually put together there. And then we would traverse across the United States. We'd come all the way out to Washington, D.C., make runs to Washington, make runs to New Orleans. And then we would negotiate contracts with the other railroads in Canada, which is via rail. And we would run the trains from Vancouver, uh, Canada, all the way to Montreal. It's 3,000-plus wow. miles. And the interesting thing about that is you could see the change in the scenery. And what I mean by just the scenery is the signage would go from English to French. <laughs> Once you got past Banff and Kamloops in Canada, which is the central part, get closer to Montreal, things start to turn to French-Canadian. Yeah. And for Mexico, when we would run the trains out of Tenino, we would go down to Nogales, Arizona. And from Nogales, Arizona into Nogales, Mexico, into Divisadero, Creel, Chihuahua, Sonora State, Sonora State, and Sinaloa. Wow. And there's a place called Benjamin Hill, which is great in the mountains. It, it was great to see the scenery there. So how, how many times do you think you traverse the United States by train? Conservatively, I would say 12 or 13 times, That's maybe awesome. more. And intercontinental, excuse me, yeah. transcontinental, outside of the United States. Yeah. Seven or eight times. I mean, that's just, I've never done it once, and I can't imagine, you know, doing it by rail. That'd be so cool. It is. It's enjoyable to watch the scenery change as you go from different parts of the country. And after you see that scenery change, you start to really get to see the cultural changes as well. Other individuals, like when you go to different countries, and you see the differences between Mexico and the United States, even though... Folks that can't see this, we're butted up against Mexico. Yeah. It's vastly different there than it is here. And then when you get into Canada, it's basically the same. Yeah, It's like it's going from your neighbor's house to the other. But when you're in Mexico, it's like going from your neighbor's house into the other side of the tracks. Yeah, It's vastly different. And how, so 12, 13 times, what, how long does it take to traverse the United States by train? It takes a while. It takes four to seven days, and that's basically because of other traffic. You have rail traffic and other passenger traffic. And since the freight carriers, you have to pay an incentive to them to move your trains. Yeah. So Amtrak trains come first. They will move first, and then any other private excursion train comes later. Okay. And the freight traffic will take precedence, especially if it's sort of like the Tropicana juice trains. Mm. They're time-sensitive trains. They're refrigerated trains, so they have to move across the United States, and also the UPS pig trains. And they're not actually pigs. They're just trucks on rail cars <laughs> going from one part of the United States to the other. Why is it called a pig train? I have no <laughs> idea. Well, I do have sort of an idea, and that's because... The pigs, just like with elephants, when you see in the circus, you would have oh. the elephants with their tails tied to the next tail and go like yeah. that. Well, freight cars for uh, rail uh, truck carriers, they're 
coupled together and it looks like like a little elephant trail, a little going trail down. going down the tracks. That's like pretty that. funny. Yeah. I love where you go fact it. Friday sometime of the, the use of the word pig in different transportation modes because I think it's in pipeline also. It is they also use yeah. Pig, yeah. pipeline, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, that's the thing that cleans the pipeline. Yeah, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. And goes down. So uh, so you were you were doing the safety stuff for those cross-country trips, though, too, like making sure all the agreements were in place, that the rail was – I mean, did you do – so you – you rented, you know, rented time, rented space, kind of to get on some of those rails. Would you kind of do your own expe- inspections to make sure it was safe, and then, you know, send you guys, or did you kind of trust, you know, UP or BNSF or whoever it was that you know everything was up to spec to be able to handle your cars? In the United States, we relied on the carrier themselves yeah. because you know the inspection processes were very good, especially dealing having FRA as the regulator as well. Yeah. However, going into Canada and going into Mexico. We would do a high rail prior to sending the private excursion train out and do the high rail, inspect the rails, and go from there. And the high rail is just kind of like a, a – is it that's the car that drives on it and kind of does the scan of the rail? That's When you do a yeah. high rail trip, it can be a truck, it can be a car, or it can be a self-propelled locomotive that would have the testing equipment attached to it to see if there are any defects mm-hmm. in the rail. I've always wanted to do this, and I never have. You always see those trucks that have – the train wheels on them that, you know, they, you, you watch them do it. And as a kid, I grew up in a, in a town where there were a couple of different tracks because there was a lumber, uh, lumber plant there and they would load up all that. So the trains were just part of life, but you'd watch those trucks drive up on the tracks and start to kind of like, they line them, some guys up there lining them up to make sure they're on the rail. And then they lower the wheels down, it lifts up and then they just drive away. That's correct. It's, in my mind, that is like the best way to go. <laughs> That's correct. That's just how it does it. Get up to the crossing line up the little steel wheels that they have, turn the wheels, get them on the track, and off they go. How fast could you go? How fast? Did you ever, <laughs> not break any laws, but did you ever try to max that out? No, we never tried to max that. We went to make sure we were able to observe the rail as we go. From oh, there. So I guess you're trying to do something, hour. yeah. yeah Try to be doing safe. <laughs> and then from there, after I left uh, the American Iron Express, I went over to the Kansas City Southern Railway. In East St. Louis and worked as a train master, yard master. Stayed there for two years. And then I started my eventual journey over to the big leagues. I made it to Amtrak as a train master in Northern California. And then assistant superintendent of road and yard operations. And the territory I had was covering from Oakland, California to Bakersfield, California. Wow. So I had that 300 plus miles of territory to be responsible for. You've said a couple. What's a train master? What does that mean? The train master is responsible for the overall train movements and directions out of his terminal. And what he does is make sure that his train crews are prepared to go and have their their documents needed to access the rail and travel from point A to point B and anything else that they need to do. And also to do the testing of the crews to make sure they're complying with the rules. And also at Amtrak to take care of revenue uh, checking the revenue from the conductors when they're t- collecting their ticket revenue okay. to make sure the revenue is being turned in and there's no theft or any other discrepancies. Seems like some heavy duty logistics are involved in some of that, like all, a lot of different things to monitor. Yes, it is. It's <laughs> quite a few things. Well, it's not a quite a few, that's the wrong terminology. There are a lot of things to monitor. Logistics is just one part. We also have to, as a train master, you have to be cognizant of the maintenance required on the train as well. So the train master would work with the maintenance department also to make sure that the trains were ready to depart on time 
and the part as scheduled. Mm-hmm. And what I mean as scheduled, a train needs to be put together and prepared to go two hours before departure. Okay. So the train mats will work with the maintenance crews, the mechanical crews, and make sure that those trains are ready to go in the yard before they advance to the terminal to c- collect passengers and move out. So it seems like you you need to have some concept or not even maybe even more than just a concept of all the pieces and facets involved with with train operations, you know, is there a journeyman program where you kind of you'll follow someone around to to do coupling on the trains in the yard and like so you know you know what to expect from everybody, you know how it's done or is it just kind of on the job training where as you're going through you just kind of learn it as you go or I would hope that it's kind of a journeyman program where it's kind of set up together, but it seems like there's so many different pieces to have to know. Most individuals that make train master or assistant superintendents or superintendents started out at the very basic, in the very basic as a switchman. They worked their way through the ranks. It took me a total of 17 years to make it to assistant superintendent from starting as a switchman to a conductor to an engineer, locomotive engineer, assistant train master, train master, assistant superintendent, and then to safety transportation specialists. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's, it seems, all of, all the stuff that you've been saying, I've been thinking about like the end goal, like you're, you're a rec specialist for, for rail. I don't know how you could do what you do now without that, you know, 14, 15 years beforehand, because there are so many different pieces. You are absolutely correct in that. The foundation, I was hired to NTSB for my background, for my knowledge, not because of any degree that I may hold. A person actually needs the working knowledge from the ground up, from the rail up to the locomotive, to the overall maintenance of the tracks, to even financial aspects of what it takes to actually have something completed in a recommendation response. Even though cost-benefit analysis is not a part of our concern, it's good for us to know that to yeah. have that insight on what it may cost. Do you uh, do you try to keep kind of up on some stuff? So do you get back on the field just to see how things may have changed? Because it's been a few years and, and things can ch- kind of change a little bit. Do you try to get out just to kind of keep stuff fresh for yourself? Absolutely. I'll, I'll give you uh, an example of that. As a matter of fact, you and I, we went <laughs> right. uh, to Boston to MBTA, to Massachusetts. I wasn't going to toot my own horn, so I appreciate you, you know, doing all that. <laughs> we went out over to MBTA to see their operations in full effect. We looked at a couple of their lines as well to see how they were moving along with PTC, also how they were doing with bringing in new cars as well. And, for instance, we get out with, with WMATA as well mm-hmm. here and to see how they're going along. They brought in new cars, 7,000 series cars, to replace the 1,000 and the 4,000 series cars. We do try to get out. Everyone here in this agency, no matter what mode it is, gets back out into the field to stay abreast of the changes in the industry. Yeah. Like, for instance, uh, with Stephanie as well and you as well, Eric. And James, uh, Brian, you may come out once or twice, <laughs> I guess, if we get a launch or something. He's the intern that's never going to leave, so he'll probably come out to something. (laughs) We've had the opportunity to go out on launches and keep our skills sharp. Yeah. And that makes a difference. We're not in the office away from the action. We're actually boots on the ground. We're connected to what goes on. When there's an incident that goes on, if there's a tragedy that happens, we are aware of what happens, how it happens, and what we can do to try to prevent that tragedy from happening. We stay abreast. Yeah. 
I mean, that's, that's really cool because I just think like so many changes can happen and there's so much that you've learned throughout your process. I mean, I'm still in shock, but all the different kind of things that you had to do and that you had to know and the trainer, all of that up to now so that when there is an accident and, and NTSB investigates, you work very closely with the investigators um, at the, from the beginning, not just at the end when they're working on the report, but so that you can have an understanding of where things may go and, and you can help kind of, I mean, our investigators are experts as well in their field, but, you know, you have a, a pretty work, good working knowledge as well of the capabilities and, you know, what FRA could possibly do or what Amtrak could do or what the local local folks could do. I mean, is there one that stands out or, or a recommendation that you've been working on for a while that really stands out to you as one that, um, A, you were happy that we made and, and you know, you're able to work with folks to help them complete it, or B, one that's out there that, you know, still is kind of lingering that you, you can't wait to help close out? There is a recommendation in relation to the Amtrak Philadelphia crash. Mm-hmm. That particular recommendation was in response to loss of situational awareness. And locomotive engineers pride themselves in knowing their track. They do qualification runs over that track to learn the territory. They pick out different spots for where he or she should set the brakes in order to slow down for a speed restriction or something along that nature, different spots. And with that recommendation, that accident, I look to get more from that for the industry. And what I mean Mm -hmm. for the industry, I mean for the rail industry. What techniques can be given to locomotive engineers or training can be presented to he or she that can help them get through their runs without losing that situational awareness and knowing exactly where he or she is at the moment, no matter what the case may be, whether it's some sort of coin to remind them something, some sort of object that can be placed on on the dash of the locomotive or something like that, something magnetic, whatever it can be, some sort of technique that can be used to help that person be aware of where he or she is when they're operating their locomotive, their trains. So, and this is something I'm not super, I mean, I understand situational awareness. I've talked about it, but I've never heard about using like an object to kind of help remind you of something. I know I've read stories about like the high speed trains in Japan. And I think the conductors or engineers like point at things as they're going along to remind themselves, like they see the, and they have to physically point at it. And, you know, I know they do it on the subways where like there's someone in the back. Is that part of the kind of the same thing? Like making, they recognize it or I understand where I am, like adding to the situational awareness? Yes, you are correct. When oh. you say that anything that can be used to jog the memory or to keep that person focused on the task at hand, no matter what's going on around them, whether it's radio traffic, uh, whether it's preparing for the next station stop, mm-hmm. there are multiple things that engineers need to be aware of and stay mindful of, for instance, the braking conditions that they're going to need to have in order to get to a full stop at the station and not overrun the station. And what I mean by overrun the station is shoot past yeah. the station. So that's where those little visual cues, something that can remind that person where to set the brakes to start slowing down, whether it's a, a house out in the field somewhere that they've seen time and time yeah. again. Maybe it's a big tree that was there or something along that nature. 
who knows what's going to happen when that tree gets struck well, by lightning and falls yeah. down or something I say, like is that. that. Where the, is that where the rails own like, you know, 20 feet on either side of the rail so those trees can't be taken down? Is that what this is? So something along that nature, something that can jog the memory, yeah. something that can keep that person focused on the task at hand because the locomotive engineers are actually having multiple tasks while they're in the radio yeah. or while they're in the cab of the locomotive. And it, yeah, I never really have thought of, I mean, I knew it, I I knew it takes a long time to slow down a train, but I never really thought in my mind, like, oh, yeah, they need to really start probably slowing down like two miles before they get to, you know, if I take my um, my Northeast Quarter Amtrak, like, they need to start slowing down like a mile and a half to two miles before they get to the station at BWI or something. I never really processed that they need to, I don't know, I always assumed like they would just kind of know. But, yeah, if there's a lot of other things going on, they need to be looking for that tree or that whatever. That's pretty interesting. I hadn't thought about that. So that's one of the recommendations from the um, uh, Philadelphia crash, that was what, three years ago? I forget the exact date, but yes, that loss oh of situ- situational awareness is real important yeah. in the real industry. We'll be sure to put that in the notes. I, I've got uh, acronyms and uh, loss of situational awareness. I'll make sure to put those in there. Um, just because it was fresh in mind, because it happened earlier uh, in the day, and you're the first rec specialist that we've had on the uh, on the uh, podcast. All right. Um, you know, we were, I was uh, at a meeting and there was, con- you know, confusion over how our recommendations work. So we get them. Can you maybe walk through the process of, you know, we've gone through, you've worked with the investigators, made a recommendation, the report is published, kind of what's next? Like, I know there's some statutory regulations or guidelines on how this all goes. Can you kind of walk through some of the process and then, you know, kind of how you help pull things along? Sure. Pull, or, or get information, maybe not pull things along. Sure. <laughs> After the board approves our recommendation, our report, and we send it out to the recipients, we would like to get a response from that recipient within 90 days. Mm-hmm. And it's in our board order, as a matter of fact, that that's what we would require from the recipients. The recipients does, don't have access to our board order, but they are aware. <laughs> we would like to get a response. You let them know. We, we, let we like something know. in 90, 90 days. days. Okay. Yes. And they can send in something a lot sooner if they prefer. Yeah. After that response comes into the agency, it gets routed through our MD3, our executive secretariat, and it goes over to safety recommendations. That safety recommendation is then issued from the chief to whatever mode needs to address that recommendation, whether it's aviation, marine, pipeline, intermodal, highway, or rail. We have a total of six weeks to address that recommendation to get a response back out to the recipient. And in that six-week time, that's so we can get that recommendation addressed, sent over to the directors so we can get their concurrence. We can also get the, some response back from the recipient if we need more information oh, from so them as well. so you can get well. the clarification get that you might need. Okay. Absolutely. And then once we get the, our concurrences back, we submit that to the board for their vote. We submit it to the board. The board gives us our vote whether it's approved with holes that we must address, that mm-hmm. the board member may have some concerns about our, the response that we're sending out, we'll address those uh, with holes to make it clear, to make it concise, and that way the recipient is also clear and concise yeah. on what we're looking for as well. Once we get that vote back from the board, it goes out to the recipient. Hopefully it's a closed, acceptable action. If not, it can be closed, acceptable response, and we're looking for more information from the recipient so we can advance this recommendation to a closed status. 
However, there are times when the recipient sends back an answer that just won't do. Mm -hmm. And we would make the recommendation to the board that that response is uh, open, unacceptable. It's just not the correct response. It does not address the intent of the safety recommendation. And we will give them a response back that will say this is not, and I'm paraphrasing here, of course, because the board speaks for uh, all (laughs) of us, but this is not exactly what the intent of our recommendation is. Your response does not address the recommendation. Mm -hmm. And we would actually offer them assistance, whether they would like to have a meeting and come in to discuss and we would also offer something in writing that maybe if you could do A, that may move this to B, C, D, okay. and eventually to Z to close out the recommendation in an acceptable action. I didn't realize that the board voted on all of those those responses. I honestly thought it was just it kind of came in and and <laughs> and uh, Stephanie's shaking her like you should know this, but like that the rec specialist would kind of look at it and be like, oh, this is really this is this is almost there. I, I think I mean. I really thought there was a lot of autonomy that you, I didn't realize you had a whole process that you had to go through for all that. And that can sometimes, I mean, not that it process is bad, but sometimes that can take a long time. And maybe the recipients want an answer now, like, Hey, we've done all this work, you know, let us, let us know. So you're probably dealing with a lot of that too. Absolutely. The recipients, once their letters submitted into our correspondence unit, they're looking to get an answer back really quickly. <laughs> Whether it's positive or negative, yeah. they're looking for that response. Responses from NTSB carry so much weight with these recipients that, for instance, if we, took, if we had a recipient and we sent them a response that said, close, no action taken, we will get a response back from that recipient within 30 days, not wanting that stain of no action taken on an NTSB recommendation okay. to where they will actually literally jump through hoops to get something that says open acceptable response or close acceptable action. Okay. And it and can you maybe go into a little bit of the difference? So I know uh, uh, federal agencies are mandated. They need to respond to us. They don't necessarily need to listen to us. We we hope you do. So dear federal partners, we we our, our safety recommendations are very important. We like you to take action on them, but they don't have to. Private sector individuals, you know, companies or whatnot, sometimes we may never hear from them, right? It's just kind of we send it to them and they don't really want to have to deal with us. And Or do most people respond no matter if they're a federal or, or a private entity? The majority of our recipients, whether they're a private entity or a regulator, they do respond. And so, although we have no regulatory authority, mm-hmm. Our recommendations are valued as very, very, very technically sound. And that's why we get recognized worldwide for our recommendations and our investigations as well as being top-notch. So everyone really feels pride when they can fulfill the intent of a safety recommendation from NTSB. Now, as I said, we have no regulatory authority. However... Our recommendations carry a lot of weight with the regulators, whether yeah. it's uh, FEMSA, NHTSA, FRA. They all try to have a close, acceptable action on our recommendations. Yeah. Um, and I'll, dear listeners, I'll put a link to some of these acronyms of uh, FEMSA, FRA, so that you can click on it and you find through, because I'm still learning what some of them are, too. Um, 
how many recommendations in your in your three years here do you think you've worked on? I would have to <laughs> just guessing. I would say hundreds. Yeah, hundreds with working with RPH Rail Pipeline and Hazardous Materials that group. I sit on on their production meetings and I sit in on investigative technical reports as well. And when we try to craft recommendations with the investigators, it's literally hundreds. It's actually <laughs> hundreds, not literally. It's yeah. actually hundreds in the three years that I've been here. See, I didn't realize you had the uh, the P and the H as well. I knew you had the rail. I didn't know you had the pipeline and hazmat. That's correct. So you have a very solid. Uh, we've talked, you know, a very solid background in rail. Uh, how was your how was your pipeline hazmat background? Did you have to do a, a few uh, refresher courses? I mean, I knew that it would be part of what you did, you know, with working on the train yards and all that. But you know, uh, did you have to kind of uh, brush up on some of your your pipeline hazmat knowledge? Absolutely, <laughs> I, I would go out to different trade association shows and pick up knowledge of things that have changed in the industry as well, yeah. and also get some of the compliance manuals from FRA Federal Railroad Administration. Yeah. And get a uh, take a look at FEMSA's Pipeline Hazards Materials Association websites, and immerse myself in that knowledge base so I can reply to their responses. Wow. Yeah, and those I, I I've seen some of those. They're really easy reads. So I'm sure that was a pleasant experience <laughs> for you to have to go through all of that. That's right. nothing like a 400 page read, 400 page read. Great uh, with references to another 500 page book and something else like that. That's great. Oh, the one thing I also say we should probably mention is that all these communications that you were talking about, the back and forth and all that, it's it's all public. Like once we get a response, it's put on the, um, as one of our previous guests, uh, Sean Payne said, he had the hidden, what was it he called it? The hidden gem of the agency, the public <laughs> docket. And it, within our recommendations, like all that information, all that back and forth is there. So people can see what responses are being given to the NTSB. So that's all out there. You're absolutely correct in that, and also our responses to those recipients mm -hmm. as well. That's why there's a team. We're all a team here, from the editors to advocacy, safety advocacy, TDA, whatever responses. We try to reach out to each group to see what their concerns may be. Everyone has an input here. No person has that one say. It's one voice. The board speaks, but we all participate and do in all. that yeah no that's very that's very true i like that a lot uh so this question has been in the back of my mind but i like the conversation we're going so i'm but now i'm going to ask it so how did you go from watching trains in in you know louisiana to ended up in kansas city in california did you just hop on a train and just kind of follow <laughs> to places and say hey i'm going to look for something here like how did that all i mean you're all over the place i love it i love it but how did that happen I didn't take the stick with the little handkerchief <laughs> on the back. I didn't do the hobo rides or anything like that. It just so happened I, my wife and I, we didn't have any kids. So when opportunity presented itself for me to move up through the ranks and take positions in other states, we were able to do so. And along with working with the railroad, I must say it pays well and there's a nice relocation package. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Very nice. But everything has to go. Government. Everything has to go on the rail, though, to go to the next spot. You have to be able to fit into a train car. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you're all over the place. I love that. What was the favorite place that you've lived so far? I would have to say 
Northern California. I like yeah. living there. Although now I live in Boston and I make a crazy commute back and forth <laughs> to work on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. Yeah. I like living in Northern California yeah. in the Bay Area. And you got and so you kind of mentioned your your wife kind of follows you around and now you guys are based. You kind of work with your wife to get on your commute to work. Those in the room understand, and we think it's pretty cool. <laughs> Explain your commute to the headquarters office. My commute is from Boston, Massachusetts, <laughs> into Washington, D.C., and back home yeah. in the same day on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. <laughs> yes, I get on an airplane on Tuesday morning and fly in, and I fly back home on Wednesday evening. <laughs> Excuse me, on Tuesday evening, Wednesday morning, I fly in. Wednesday evening, I fly out. <laughs> Thursday morning, fly in. Thursday evening, fly out. We all know that we can't schedule meetings with Mike after like 430 because he's got that he's got that 430, 5 o'clock flight he normally has to catch to get back. He gets in early in the morning, but that that's true. And the good thing about my commute is it's an hour and five minutes into DC and an hour and fifteen minutes back into Boston. So it's relatively shorter than some individuals yeah. who drive into work. Yeah, I just I think that's I think that's pretty funny. And I I love that you know, the flexibility was there for you to do that and then yes. to take advantage of it. And, you know, your experience is going to be able to be used. And, but I just, when the, when I first learned that it was, I, I just started here and, and, uh, you were helping me learn some of the rail stuff. And he's like, I got to go. I have to catch a flight. I'm like, Oh, where are you going? I'm going home. <laughs> and like, it was just as simple as that. And, and me not knowing anything, I was like, Oh, okay. I'll see you later. And someone had to explain it to me later. Like, no, he lives up in Boston. He does the he he does this commute every three days a week. Three days a week for the past almost three years. I've been doing this now. Uh, so, you know, you've traversed the country. You know, twelve to thirteen times by rail. So, you know, you, one of these days you need to. I know uh, you're good at spreadsheets because you track a lot of stuff. You should try to figure out how many miles you put in on rail and then how many miles you're putting in in the air. Just, you know, add that up. Add your total. <laughs> I'm going to do that. You you gave me a – issue the gauntlet down. You show me a challenge. I'm going to do that. When you do that, we'll, we'll add it into the episode as an edit. You know, okay. Mike has put in 13,000 miles in 22 years of travel. I'm going to do it. Oh, that's that, that's awesome. Uh, well, Mike, I really appreciate you taking the time to kind of give a little insight into the work that you do within safety recommendations and kind of how you got there. I mean, I knew that you were, I knew that you were well versed in in rail and all aspects of it, but I didn't understand that you know how well versed and kind of how the whole process went. I, I mean, it's hard to imagine anyone else, you know, or anyone just kind of jumping in the pistol. You really need a lot of that history and a hands-on experience to understand it, so that, like we said very early on, when you make those recommendations they're actually actionable. I really appreciate you sharing that background and how that all works. And also how the, uh, how the rec process works. Cause I think that's, um, you know, that's kind of a, a hidden piece of how the agency works. Cause it's a big, very important piece and it really helps move things forward. And I don't think it's well understood how the process is and how serious it is. And that it's not just, you know, we issue the piece of paper and, you know, wish everyone luck. We actually really want to work with our rec recipients so that they can they can close those out and follow the the guidance that our technical experts have put in. So, uh, you know, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Any closing remarks that you'd like to share with the podcast listeners? I will say that <laughs> it's a team effort here. The knowledge base is tremendous here. No person does it alone. It's a very good team here and it's a great agency 
for anyone that wants to come here, this is the best I've ever had. I like it. That's very good. Thank you very much. I appreciate you joining us, Mike. And to join in the It Is a Team, I would like to thank James, Stephanie, and Brian for helping out. It is a team effort with the podcast as well. And so, um, again, my name is Eric Strickland, and thanks for coming behind the scene. Mm-hmm.